0: go John chapter 1. As we finish our time in John 1 today, which I believe is uh, one of the most significant chapters in the entire New Testament, and these themes that run through John chapter 1 will continue to be seen and unfolded as we walk through the rest of this book over the next several years um, as we study it. Here are the five major themes firmly proclaimed in John chapter 1. Logos, He is the Word and we will talk about that. Life, light, Lamb of God and the one who transforms our life. And so as we begin today I want to I want to set forth a question and establish this for us um, for our time today. And the question is this, how do we have a right Christian faith how do we see that our faith is headed in the right direction in such a way that is honoring God where it is based solely in the truth and not grounded in our opinions or not grounded in whatever whatever the case may be, but it's grounded in the biblical truth that has come for us. And so the question is, how do we make sure we're getting our faith um, right? And And I would set forth for us today simply this, that for far too many believers, we get a good majority of our faith right, but if there 's aspects of our faith that is connected to false understanding that is not connected to the truth over time, um, we will not end up at the place where God really desires us to be because we want to walk in pure truth now. We, you and I know this, we're not always going to do that, we are humans, we are going to continue to wrestle with things, but we want that the overarching thing of our life is that, that where we are misguided, that we get in line, that, that our attitude is never, okay, God, you adjust yourself to the way I want to think, but we are always saying to Him and responding to Him, God, I will re- adjust to what you have said and what you have established and get my life um, connected uh, to your truth. We live in a day and time worldwide, and particularly here in um, the U.S., where there is to be a fight for truth, a contending for truth um, that Jude um, speaks about, because all around us, um, there has been, in many ways, just a laying down for the fighting of the truth, and I think it's why many of the things that we see around us are here. And I pray that you would join me as well, and I've been doing a lot of thinking since uh, we, on, while we were there and, and on our way back and, and uh, that we will not give up in the fight to contend for the truth of God and to walk and, and, and to make sure that our body of believers here is connected to that. Jesus in Luke chapter 18 asks a very um, intriguing question, very unique question. He was speaking about the second coming and the context there and this is what Jesus says. He said, When the Son of Man returns to the earth, he asks a question, will he find faith on the earth? Just think about that for a moment. This is Jesus himself saying, by the time I come back at the end of the age, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? And I think for us, we want to be the kind of people that if he was to come back now, in our day and time, that we would be the kind of people that he finds us trusting in the truth of God's Word and walking in what He has set forth for us. So when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? And it reminds me of something that Paul wrote to Timothy that I think is critical for us as we look at these major themes in John chapter 1. So in Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing to to Timothy, who is the, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and he tells him this in the context of chapter one, there about the truth of God's word and the call upon Timothy's life. And he tells Timothy, guard what has been entrusted. To you. And he literally says this guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. What is that good deposit? Well, it is the truth that has come to us. This calling of our lives to know God, to walk in His truth, and to do so in such a way that if Jesus were to come back, that He would find people who say, My faith is grounded in the glory and the truth of God and His Word. And I want you and I to never waver. From good doctrine, for in many, many good places, good doctrine um, has been thrown out the window in pursuit of experience and other kinds of things that are not fully connected to the truth. It's been about a month now, and I had a conversation with someone that, that spurred a thought and, and spurred me to do some research, and uh, you know, one of the things I love about the internet age, I don't love everything about the internet age, but I love that you can quickly research things. Biblegateway.com, unbelievable. You just put a word in there and man, everything pops up there. And and so I um, had a, was having a conversation with someone and also just some observation of some of the things that we've been discussing in these days, and it's connected to a question of sanctification. So once we come to know Christ and salvation, how do we move forward in sanctification and walk in a, such a way that honors God and that is connected to a biblical pathway that is set forth? for us. And the and the question is simply this, is Christian spiritual experience more important than knowing God? Which one helps us grow more in our relationship with God? And so I was having a conversation with someone about that, and you see this all around us, is there is a big push in the American church culture to make sure that there are Christian experiences and they validate whether or not We are growing in Christ. Now, let me just say this, and I've said it over the last several weeks as well. I am for Christian experiences. I hope you are as well. You read the Bible, people experience Christ. And so we're not saying experiences are not valid. I just had an experience on our mission trip. But I wanted to ask the question to the Bible, And sometimes we need to ask the Bible this question, is what does the New Testament tell us is key in our growth in sanctification? Does the New Testament tell us experiences, get as many experiences, you know, cool worship experiences, all of that kind of stuff? Or does the Bible call us to know God through His Word more than Christian experience? And so I went to, well, it's up on my tap bar, and I just... Typed on Bible Gateway and it opened up and I typed into the search bar the word experience. There are four places in the New Testament where the word experience is there. Three of them are connected to suffering and persecution. Now we as Americans we don't understand that and so that experience is foreign to us. Um, experience and so if we if we are to pursue if we were to pursue a biblical mandate of Christian experience, then according to the New Testament um, that would be connected to persecution predominantly the fourth one is a reference to Paul going to a church that he had been to before that when they got together again he was saying man we would have a great experience of us connecting our lives together and then it didn't take me long to copy and paste those over and then I typed in the word know knows knowing knowledge New Testament 504 references in the New Testament alone Now, of those 504, not every one of those are directly connected with knowing God. Some of them are talking about somebody else, maybe a personal friend that you know, but about 400 of them, pretty firm about that, about 400 of those are connected to knowing. So the question comes as this, what is critical for us to grow? And I think the New Testament would put forth for us the critical aspect in our growth is not seeking out spiritual experiences. The critical aspect in our growth is to seeking to know God in the Word, in the truth. And as we do that, naturally what happens is experience. But what's what's troubling about what we see today with the Western church is simply this, is that experience has become such a predominant thing that we basically say this, that my experience validates the truth. And I say, no, truth validates experience, because sometimes experience isn't always biblical. And we have to go back to the text of the Scripture to say, is this really what the Scripture teaches? And this is what John is doing in chapter 1. John is calling you and I to a place of knowledge to know Christ and he gives these he gives these five clear pictures four clear things about the nature and character of Jesus and then because Jesus is these four things then he does something in our life there's an experience that is biblical and it is right and it's transformative and so, so I, I, I just have been sensing for several weeks that before we move on to John chapter 2, which is pretty amazing um, what we're going to see in John chapter 2, I love this aspect of we'll see this two weeks from today um, as we start John chapter 2. Jesus goes to a wedding. How cool is that? He had friends. And he went to places he didn't just walk around all the time just preaching and doing stuff. He just he was connected to people's lives. And he goes to this wedding, and he does this incredible miracle at this wedding that reveals that he is God, and, and, and he's glorious, and he's good, and he's kind, even in the simple things that we experience in our lives. And so um, I just had an experience. But I, I, every mission trip I go on, I don't go on to have an experience I have an experience every time I go on one. But every time I go on a mission trip, this is my desire. God, I want to know you in the midst of these people, in the midst of serving you. I want to see something fresh about you. I want to see something unique about your character that maybe I haven't thought about in a while. And it happened again. And so I'm here to call us to not get confused about the teaching of Scripture. All of the writers of the New Testament 400 specific references call you and I to know God connected to the truth, know His character, know His glory, know what He says, and to walk in that. And as we do it, there's an experience that has that is transformative, but it comes out of connecting our life to the nature and the truth of God's Word. So let's look at what John sets forth for us by way of summary today in the text. Look with me, John 1. Verse 1, and then we're going to look at verse 14. And I've framed all this around the word consider because I think that's what John is setting forth. He's calling people to consider what he's writing, what he's setting forth about Jesus. And the first point is this, is consider Christ as the Logos of God. So John 1, 1, and then we'll read verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John sets forth, all of these are L's, they just naturally work that way in English here, and so we're going to look at those. Consider Christ as the Logos. So in the city of Ephesus, sometime in the 5th century B.C., was a man named Heraclitus. And he began to develop this idea of the Logos, which said there was someone behind a reasoned person an ordered person who set forth the way life works and so one day a thought spurred with him and he simply this did this he stuck his foot in a river and then he stuck his foot back out and he was I guess a very contemplative man, and then he stuck his foot back into the river and he began to think about it and he began to say this, you know, each time that I step my foot back into what I think is the same place, same river, it's actually really not. There's new water. That water has already flowed through. This is new water now. I'm not stepping exactly what's there. And he began to develop this idea and thinking for himself and he, and he expanded it greatly. And he developed this this word that is connected um, very heavily back then in the Greek language called Logos. And basically what he said is he began to notice that in a world that is constantly changing, nothing is ever the same. There seems to be one constant behind everything that is not the same. And it must be someone who is orderly and does this. And so he developed this idea is there, there is God is behind that. Now, he, he didn't believe in Yahweh. He wasn't a, Jesus hadn't come. And so he wasn't a a believer in the Messiah. And so at the end of the first century, the Apostle John hijacks this word. And he transforms it and puts it into a Christian context. And this is what he says, In the beginning was the Logos, the word, the expression of God. And the Logos, the word, the expression of God, was with God face-to-face, this phrase with God means face-to-face, intimate with God. And not only that, this Logos, the one who's behind everything, the one who orders everything, the one who created everything, the Logos is God. Now, John 1-1 uses this phrase was. We would say, well, that's a past tense word. In the Greek, it means this. It means to be, to be in a continual state of being. So in other words, here's how you can read John 1-1. In the beginning, in the beginning, God has always been God, the logos, has always been with God, and God has continually been God. and so John is setting forth saying this to us as a reminder, establishing this: God has always existed, the fullest expression of who God is is in the person of Jesus in the beginning he, is, he, he was God, he is with God continually never out of fellowship with God and he is continually being God he is God and so John sets forth this idea for us it's so critical that we need to trust in Jesus we need to see that Jesus is glorious is because Jesus is the one who is behind everything look at verse 18 no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the father's side He has made Him known. This word known means to exegete or to explain. And so Jesus, one of His great roles is that Christ has come to explain and reveal who the Father is. And so in Christ, John says, consider this. He is the one who is behind everything. He is the one in whom God clearly communicates His will. He is the one in whom God clearly communicates His thoughts to us. He is the one who clearly, most clearly, reveals who God is. And so three things John sets forth. He is preexistent, in the beginning, God. Not only in the beginning, God, but he is with God. And again, I said a while ago, this word means face to face, intimate. And so Jesus and the Father, there, together, in relationship. And then he says, and the word was or is God, telling us that he is, it's one of the most full affirmations of the scripture, that he is God himself. On the night that Jesus was, um, just before he was arrested, they were in the upper room, and Philip, um, uh, had a question for him we'll talk about philip here in a moment but philip said lord um show us the father he show us we won't see we won't see the father we show us the father and it will be enough for us philip says and jesus said have i been with you so long and you still do not know me philip he said whoever has seen me has seen whom the father you've seen the Father. you see me you see, the Father, here's why, because the Father and I are face to face. We are one. We are equal. We are both God, not superiority, inferiority. And so he establishes them. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And all through the life and ministry of Jesus, what he continued to affirm over and over again was this in the things that he said and the things that he did that he is the eternal God? So when he stood up on a boat one night and said to the winds, Stop it, they stopped. When he was walking down the road and he met a guy, blind men calling out to him, he heals the blind man and they get sight. When he says to a man one day, rise up, take your mat and go home. He gets up and he goes home. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus says to a leper, I will cleanse you and I will touch you. By the way, in the capital city we were just in, we saw leprosy on the streets. Literally saw it. Just tragic. And Jesus touched someone 2,000 years ago. Not supposed to do that, by the way, and immediately heal them, but see, only God can do that. God doesn't catch leprosy. He is over all things. When Jesus told a man one day whose hand was like this, stretch out your hand, and it was fully restored to being use again. When Jesus said, bring the fish and loaves to me, and he took them and he broke them and he prayed, and he he prayed and lifted them up, and it fed thousands of people that day. Only God can do that. When he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and said, Hey, dead man, you come forth. Only God can do that. And when Jesus spoke to the demons, they had to flee. You see, John is setting forth and reminding you and I this critical reality that Christ is the Logos. He is the fullest expression of who God is. If you want to know what God's like, then you read the Gospels. If you want to know what God's like, read the epistles, read the letters, as they explain further who Christ is and what he he means to us and who he is to us in our lives. So so John establishes, here's the critical reality, he is the reason behind everything. And if he's the reason behind everything, what does that mean? Well, John sets forth this in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, and without him... There wasn't anything made that has been made, and so He is the Creator. He is the one who made all things. And so because he made all things, that brings us to point number two, because it takes us to to verse four. Look at verse four. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So John's setting forth. Consider Christ as a logos. He's the one who's behind it all. He's the creator. He made you. He made the world. He wants you to know him. He He wants you to know that he came to lay his life down for us in salvation. And he becomes the one that becomes our very life. He's the one who holds life. The word is the source of all life. This word here twice used, in him was life and the life was the light of men. is a Greek word called zoe and it means this, the life principle, the one who is the life principle but not just biological life, not just p- creating people and things being alive or creating animals or creating mountains or stars and galaxies, it's not, not just that. It simply it, it, it really fundamentally means this. If he is the essence of what true life is, if you want know true life is, then you have to know Jesus. And it goes beyond just a physical birth, it goes beyond breathing, heart beating, brain function. It becomes much, much deeper and greater than that. And this one who is life stepped into a world that was dead. And he stepped into a world that was spiritually dead for the purpose of bringing life to people so that they would come to faith in him. Listen to what Paul says. Ephesians 2, 1, following. And you were dead, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, I love this language, we all once walked. We used to be that way. We once lived that way in the passions of our flesh where we carried out the passions and desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature, this was our nature. This was who we are, children of rest, wrath like the rest of mankind. But you know what he did with people who were dead when he came? He brought them to life because he's the essence of life. There was a little boy who grew up on a farm, and he, dad was a big farmer, and and uh, it was time for him. He would reached the age where he needed to start doing some stuff around the farm, and so dad says, "Hey, we're going out to the chicken coop today, and you're going to come with me, and and uh, and I'm going to show you one last time how what we do to chickens to eat them, and uh, and so come out there with me, and and he holds the chicken up and cuts its neck off, and. And this happened to me. I was eighth grade ag in Waco, Texas, and I, I wrung a chicken's neck. And that thing landed on the ground and started chasing me, and it didn't have a head. I'm holding the head in my hand, and that chicken is running, chasing me and, and all my people. And, and uh, man, that was, a, that was a freaky moment. But anyway, chickens do run with their heads cut off. They literally do that. And the boy was watching this chicken do that and set up to his dad said to his dad he said dad look that chicken's dead and he don't even know it and i want to i want to say this to us today you and i live in a world that is just spiritually dead and people all around us they have no idea that they're dead they don't know it and so they do the destructive things that they do because you know what you know what destructive people do they follow here's what paul says They follow the prince of the power of the air. Who are they following? Satan. They're under his influence. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, What, what what do spiritually dead people do? They follow the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And because they are that way and because we used to be that way, we were objects of wrath to the Father. But praise his name. The one who is the essence of life came and laid his life down on an altar and he died for us. And because he conquered the grave, guess what? He calls people to salvation. He raises them from spiritual death and life comes. Not just biological life, breathing. We're all breathing in here this morning. But real essence of life, God life. Again, sorry. Most amazing thing ever. God lives inside of me. God lives inside of you. Is that not amazing today? He's inside of us. The life principle, the essence of life, the eternal logos, the word who spoke the world into existence, that one lives in us. So Powerful is the moving of God to bring life to you and I. John says, consider this reality. In him was life, this creator God, and that life was the light of men. And he brings a life that is amazing. And here's what happens when spiritually dead people meet Jesus. They come to life on the inside. When spiritually dead people meet Jesus, they move from death to life when spiritually dead people meet Jesus, everything comes new. Listen to John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has not hopes to has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. No longer are we objects of wrath, but has passed from death to life. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Of the old is past away behold the new has come so the biblical a biblical definition of life in christ let me give you some passages he is the source of eternal life john eleven twenty five. 25 jesus said to her i am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this he asked and she said to him yes lord i believe that you are the christ the son of god who was coming into the world. So he's the source of eternal life. If you have the Son, you have life. 1 John 5 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Clear, straightforward. Well, what kind of life is it? Now, here, here, my heart here. This was me a long time ago, junior in high school. Boy, I, I had some hang ups about. Christ and and I didn't want to believe and I fought it because I thought if I became a Christian then God was going to bore my life to death he was going to he just wanted to take things and he man I just got to act like all these other people around here and that's what spiritually dead people think they think that we Christians don't have life we don't love life we we don't you know kiss our wives on the mouth and we don't you know we I mean listen we we love life we like to have fun. We play, Christians play sports. Christians make money. Christians have integrity. And so there's this life that happens that's really cool. But I had a hang-up about that, and I didn't, I didn't realize it. But, I, but let me remind you now this morning. Jesus said this, John 10, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to do what? Give you life? But what kind of life? Abundant life. Abundant life. This word abundant in the Greek means this. Superior, extraordinary, surpassing, and an uncommon life. Real life flows out of Jesus. And so Jesus is the Logos. Because He is the Logos, He is the essence. He's the eternal one. He is the essence of true life. So those who know Jesus and have Jesus, they have true life. And so all of this speaking from Jesus about obeying Him, following Him, who He is, is centered at this purpose that we would believe. Listen to what John says. It's the reason John wrote the Gospel of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So John says, consider Christ as the Logos. He's the divine reason. He's the expression of God. You want to know what he's like? Look at the life of Jesus. He is the creator because he's the eternal one. He made all of this. We messed it all up with our sin and our choice to rebel. But he is the glorious one. He is the creator. And we come to him because life is found truly in him. Thirdly. Consider Christ as the sole source of light. Look at verse 5. We're looking at 5, 7, and 9. Verse 5. Well, let's put 4 with it because the last part of 4 talks about it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look at verse 7. Speaking of John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. Look at verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This word light here is connected with knowledge, understanding, knowing. So the light has come so that we would know who God is. God's not about hide and seek. He's about full revelation of himself. And so, so God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. What's the relationship between light and darkness? Well, the purpose of light is to shine in the darkness. What happens when light gets turned on in the darkness? Which prevails? Light. Every single time. Is there ever an exception to that? Never. There's never an exception. Walk in any kind of room, walk anywhere, turn a light on, and what does the light do? It overcomes the darkness. So John says, consider Jesus as the source of everything, the Creator God. He's the point of it all. It's it's a Christ-centered universe. It's a Christ-centered world. Our lives should be a Christ-centered life because He is life. And when you get His life, you get light. And light can never be overcome by darkness. Now, some of your translations may say uh, the darkness did not comprehend it. Or the translations will say, did not overcome it. It is, in many ways, the same idea, a little bit different perspective of it. The darkness, the dark world that we live in, the dead, dark world that we live in, does not understand Jesus. You ever tried to explain to somebody who Jesus is? And and it's really clear, but it's not clear to them. The communication we've shared is clear, but they're like, I don't see it. You know why? Because Satan has done a work, and we'll talk more about that here in a moment. But I'll just just remind you and I today of this great reality. The light wins. It wins every single time. And so Satan can rant and rave and he can do whatever he wants to do, but darkness can never grab the light and overcome it. So you and I, live in the light of God and and if he is in us then the light of God is inside of us allowing us to see who he is let me say a few more things about Christ as the light since he is the true light he is able to illumine himself now we've got switches back there and if we flip them down the room is going to get a little darker the sun's out and so there'll still be some light in here but Jesus is not a lesser light this these are lesser lights The sun is pretty powerful today. It's the most powerful light in the universe, our universe here. But it pales in comparison to the light and the glory of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when we get to our eternal state in heaven, there will be no sun and moon. Why? Because he who is true light lights up heaven. So we're eventually getting to a place where lesser lights will no longer be there. The true light will light up everything and we will live in the light of His presence. And I want to say to you and I today, because it's John's heart today, is to say this, don't pursue lesser lights. Don't pursue them. Don't go after them. They cannot give you life. If you have life, then you have been given the light who is Jesus, who who calls you and I and leads you and I deeper into truth. This word true light in the Greek means genuine, real, legitimate, as opposed to something false. There is no true light anywhere except the light of Jesus. All other lights are lesser lights, and they require something else. The sun requires God to keep it alit. God is the one who sustains and upholds the world. And There will come a day when this sun and all the other stars and all the other galaxies will be done away with. And it will be burned up by fire, and He will create a new heaven and a new earth. For those of us who know Him, who have life, we will dwell. Because we have life, we will dwell in light, the eternal light, forever and ever. He is not a borrowed light. He is not a secondary, lesser light. He is the true light as opposed to shadows and symbols. He is the preeminent all glorious light of God, and no one shines more brilliantly than Christ. And so therefore, it is in Him and incumbent on us to see Him for all that He is. Let me tell you a few things more about Christ as light. 1 Timothy 6.15 Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. He is light himself, itself. 1 John 1.5 This is the message we have heard from Him, and we proclaim it to you, that God is light, and in Him... There is no darkness at all. James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of what? Lights. What does He do for us in the realm of light? Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Watch this. From the domain of darkness, raised us to life, and He put us into the kingdom of His Son, which is a kingdom of light. John twelve forty six. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 1 Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Paul at the very end of the book of Acts, Acts twenty six eighteen, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Our identity becomes life. Paul said in Ephesians 5 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. What does he do? Well, he brings light into our hearts. Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. How do you know if you are in the light? Well, John wrote this in John 3, 21, Whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. In God. But let me remind us the great tragedy in the world today, John three nineteen, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved what rather than the light? They loved what? Darkness. They loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now Satan's stupid. And smart. Stupid that one day he thought that he could overthrow God's throne and he could place himself on it. But he gets humanity. He gets humanity. And you and I shouldn't underestimate his lies and his deception. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. Disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their d- deeds. Listen what Satan also does, Second Corinthians 4.4. Four. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? Why is he blinding? Why is he about blinding? Why is he about hiding? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The truth is light. The truth reveals who God is, how we ought to walk. And so Satan is about that. All right. Consider Christ as the Logos. He's behind it all. He's the point of it all. You find the creator. You find life. He gives life that's abundant. You find The one who gives life, he gives light to know how to walk in a relationship with them. And then fourthly, consider the Lamb. Look at verse 29 and 35 with me. So John the Baptist is here. He's got some disciples around him. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at 35. The next day, again, John was standing With two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus. As he walked by and said. Behold the Lamb of God. So here's the reality. And this is the critical one. So Christ is the divine reason. He's the fullest expression of God. He is the Logos. He is the one who defines God fully for us he exegetes God he explains who the father is as creator he is the author of the essence of life that is connected solely in him when you find him you get light you don't live in darkness anymore but we walk in light and so he came for this purpose something had to happen because we had an issue called sin we walked in darkness it was our nature we, had, we were hostile in mind, rebelling, rebelling against God. No one sought God. And so Jesus came to lay his life down, to become the Lamb of God, so that in his body on the altar of the cross, he would bear our sin, he would be buried, he would conquer the grave. And therefore now, as he calls people to him and faith is placed in him, as people believe in his name, he becomes the Savior because he's the one who was the Lamb. So let me make a few statements here about considering the Lamb. And the first one is this. He is the Savior of sinners. So when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God, he didn't say a Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. And he is the Savior of sinners who came to rescue us. Secondly, he is the solution to man's sin problem. Man has a problem. It is sin. Jesus is the only solution to that problem. Listen to Romans three ten through 12. Paul is quoting Old Testament passage. As it is written, please hear this today. I just, I just hear this sometimes, and, and it's tragic to hear it. There is nobody good in this room today. There is nobody good in the world today. Nobody good. There's nobody good. There's only one who's good. Only one. And this talk somehow that we're good enough to earn heaven needs to be put in the grave and just done, done with. We need to put it away. So here's what Paul writes, Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11, no one understands. No one understands. Well, I understand God. Somebody who, who doesn't know the Lord says, oh, I understand God. No, they don't. They don't. No one understands. Next, no one, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. Verse 12, all, all, everyone, not an exception, all, have turned aside and all together have become worthless. And then listen to these words. No one does good. No one does good. Not even one. So no one naturally seeks. No one naturally understands. So what did God do? He came here to do what? To seek. He came here to seek. He came here to call. He came to reveal Himself. Now, there's some other places in Scripture that are really important to look at, and we'll see those here in just a moment. But you and I need to know that He is the great promise. He came to be the Savior of sinners. He is the solution to man's problem. No one was seeking Him. No one understood the gravity of the situation. No one did. No one did what was good. So we needed something very significant to happen. And it it could only happen if Jesus himself came. He is the only solution to man's problem. Narrow-minded, absolutely. Absolutely. Government can't fix our hearts. If so, how many governments have been in the history of the world? Every society crumbles. Money can't fix it. Fame can't fix it. Power can't fix it. Good health can't fix it. Um, I don't know. We would go on and on and on. Only He can fix it. And here's why. He became the sacrifice for sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Likely, a lamb lost its life in the Garden of Eden to cover the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3 or Genesis chapter 4, Abel brings the lamb as the first sacrifice acceptable in the Bible. Genesis 22, 8, a lamb is promised to Isaac so that um, as his father Abraham led him up to Mount Moriah. Exodus chapter 12, a lamb was given and slain so that the children of Israel could be protected that night Le- Leviticus chapter 4 countless lambs throughout the history of Israel as sin offerings all through the centuries Isaiah chapter 53 4 through 6 the prophet Isaiah pictured the coming Messiah as a slain lamb Mark 10:45 John 18:37 when Jesus came into this world he came for the sole purpose of going to the cross for sin to be the Lamb of God. Now, if you were a Jew back in the day, <clears throat> Jason Woodward, nice Jewish family, a couple thousand years ago, Passover came. They're not Jews, by the way, unless you leave today thinking, "I didn't know we had Jews in the church." But anyway, um, so uh, Jason, I think a Gentile, but anyways, but just pretend with me. The father every Passover would take care of finding a lamb, or they'd been raising a lamb that was spotless and pure. And so Jason, every year, would have to find that, every year, be sacrificed. Did it deal with the Woodward family sin? No, have you met that family? They got problems, okay? And so, no. Lambs couldn't fix the Woodwards, couldn't fix us. You see, it was only until the eternal father chose a lamb which was his son. Amen. There it is right there. There's a beep. And the eternal father chose a lamb, his choice, and that one came and he paid for our sin. So John says, consider the lamb. Consider the lamb. He is the logos. He is life. He is the light. He is the lamb. And lastly, he is the one who transforms our life. 29 through 34, 35 through 42, and 43 through 51 are specific examples of the transformation. Look with me in verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But to all who did receive Him, this word... Um, receive is to place personal trust and faith not just mentally agreeing about some facts it's not that way there's a lot of denominations today who call people to to just confess creeds and that's not biblical we are to confess jesus we are to trust and place our faith and trust in jesus so john writes there but to all who did receive him who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So to receive Christ is to believe in Christ. To believe in Christ is to receive Christ. And by the way, I want to focus on this phrase just for a moment. He gave the right to become children of God. Did we give ourselves the right to become children of God? No, we did not. Salvation is not about us. We do not do the work of salvation. We do not do it. God does the work. And when we do, when He does the work and we receive and we believe then we become children of God. Now let me remind us some things that are important in regard to understanding of salvation. He alone has the authority to raise us to new life. Colossians 121 says that we were alienated from God, and listen to this, and hostile in mind to God. You know what hostile means, right? Just this, hostile. So those who by nature... Are hostile to God, do they seek God? No, they don't. Only God allows us to come. Jesus said that. The Father allows people to come, the Father is the one who draws people to Jesus. To come to faith in them, and I think this happens all the time. the father's drawing, the spirit is at work, shining the light on the glory of who Jesus is. So we are alienated and hostile in mind. Romans 3:11 no one understands, no one seeks Ephesians 2: one we are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2: three we were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2: five but even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says. He, not we, He made us alive in Christ. Ephesians 2.6 he, raise, he raises up. We don't do something to raise ourselves up. He raises us up with Him. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved. Grace is our work or God's work? Great, Our work or God's work? God's work. So by grace you have been saved. Not my work. Not your work. Not our confession does the work. For by grace, by God's work, by grace, you have been saved. And then Paul says this, and this is not your own doing. You didn't do this. You had nothing to do with it. God did it. God raised us. For by grace, God's work, you have been saved. This is not of your own doing. Watch this. It is the gift of God. So glory to His name. Watch this. He offers dead spiritually people living in darkness, hostile in mind, not seeking him, not understanding, an enemy of God, by nature a children of wrath. He offers a gift. What do you do with a gift? You accept it. You receive it. So he offers a gift. He chose to give a gift. We receive it. And as we receive it, we believe in his name. So some people ask the question, so do we believe first and then receive him? I don't think you split it. I think, I think as we receive, we're believing. And as you believe, you're receiving. And it happens instantaneous. We don't wait on it. I think we get the Holy Spirit right there in that moment. We're not waiting for the Spirit to come weeks later to we kind of get things. We get everything in that moment. And you know when that happens? But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the, watch this, nor of the will of man. We don't make this happen. He makes this happen. Remember when Lazarus was in the tomb? How many days? Four. Four days. Four days. Was Lazarus in the tomb going, I think I'm going to, Confess and raise myself up. Is that what the text says, John 11? No, they opened the tomb, and what happened? Jesus spoke. Who called forth Lazarus? Did Lazarus call forth himself and say, I'm going to raise myself up? No, Jesus called him because by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. Lazarus came to life. It was a physical thing, but it's also a spiritual picture. God raises us because we are so corrupt. If we could raise ourselves, you know what we would do? We would have conferences saying, come and listen to me. I'll tell you how to raise yourself up to new life. We're just corrupt in nature, and we would brag. We would brag, and we would boast. And so it's His great work, and He raises us up. And as He does that, He he begins to do something called life transformation. And he just radically changes us. John the Baptist's life was changed. Andrew, a disciple of John the Baptist, was standing there when John the Baptist says, Hey, 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 brothers, look right there. That's the Lamb of God. You know all the lambs we've talked about that can't take away the sin of the world? That's the Lamb of God right there. See him walking down the road? That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and Andrew was like, Okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not staying around here anymore. And he began to follow Jesus. So Andrew likely and John and other guys with him, and they're following, and Jesus knows they're following. I don't know if it was a creepy moment, but, but he turns around and just says, hey, guys, what's up? What's up? What do you want? And he said, um, where are you staying? Because um, we'd like to talk to you. And they spent all afternoon and appears early into the evening, and Andrew's heart has just radically changed. And I think Andrew began to think about something, and so Andrew's life has changed, and Andrew had a brother. There was a burly fisherman, pretty rough, probably foul-mouthed, big temper, loved to speak before he thought. And Andrew, it says in the text there, it appears it was very early in the morning and he couldn't wait until the morning. He went and woke his brother up and said, Peter, Peter, we found the Messiah. I, I've been with the Messiah all day today. You've got to come. And he brings Peter. So Andrew's been transformed, life transformation. He brings Peter, and as Peter's walking up, Jesus sees right through the burly man with a big mouth and says, I'm changing your name right now. You're not Simon anymore. You're the rock. And this one who made lots of mistakes and used his mouth on the day Jesus was crucified to say, I don't know him, 40 days later, 43 days later, 42 days later, stood up on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people came to faith. You think God can't transform a life? Yeah, he can. Well, John, the other day says, hey, there's the Lamb of God and a guy named um so these two guys do and then another day jesus is walking and he finds a guy named philip and he says hey philip same one john 14 6 show us the father here's how it begins with philip jesus just comes along and says hey follow me and philip leaves everything that he knows right there in that moment he doesn't do this hey um you know i you know i got to close my bank account and you know I've, I've got some i got some stuff philip just leaves jesus says, follow me philip follows it appears in the text that Philip is a student of the Scripture because Philip has a friend named Nathaniel, and after spending time with Jesus, John one forty five says Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, "We have found the one whom Moses and all the who found Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel, you got to come see him." And it seems that, that Nathaniel was a reader of Scripture, and he got to spend, this must have been amazing for him. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Can you imagine being a student of the Scripture, a Jewish student of the Scripture, and loving the Scripture, loving the Mo- Moses, loving the Psalms, loving the prophets who wrote about Jesus and then meeting Jesus and spending the afternoon with Him as he explains himself from the Scriptures? Well, Philip is so moved that he goes and finds his friend, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's got a hang-up. Nathaniel's got some prejudices. He's got some misconceived ideas about the Messiah, where the Messiah comes from. And so Philip says, hey, come. I met this guy. He's the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, nothing comes good from Nazareth. Kind of like people from Canada, you know nothing good comes from Canada, you know I mean, are you serious? you know, so anyway, <laughs> I made fun of the a bears from Louisiana in the first service, but anyway, so so Nathaniel thinks the Messiah can't come from nazareth that's one of the worst towns. nobody vacations in Nazareth. nobody wants to go there. Those are stick people, those are backwards people, they love that they're swamp people, whatever you want to call them. You know, they're crazy. Well, Philip says, All right, from Nathaniel, I get it, you got some hang ups, but come with me. And he brings Nathaniel to Jesus. And as Nathaniel comes into the presence of Jesus, Jesus says this Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, Jesus, a couple of verses later, says this um, Philip, you believe because I saw you where you were and, and, uh, in angels descending on this ladder, he speaks about this Jacob's ladder thing, that Jacob had this dream. And, and so as Nathanael comes up, basically Jesus does a play on words and says, Behold an Israelite, in whom there is no Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver. Now, watch this. Nathanael's in another city. Jesus has been with Philip. Nathanael's been in another city. In those days, they used to everybody grew fig trees. They were huge, hot in Israel. He needed shade. Nathanael's under the tree, and Jews used to meditate on the Scripture under the fig tree. So here's Nathanael in another city, meditating on Jacob's ladder in another city. Not speaking it out loud. He's meditating on the story. He comes walking up, and Jesus says this, Behold an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit, and Nathaniel's like, How do you know me? What do you, what, what, what's the deal with you? Well, I saw you sitting on the fig tree. And then Nathaniel's like, What? You weren't there. I was in another place. And watch what Jesus does. I think that Nathaniel's meditating on Jacob's ladder, the angels descending this bridge between heaven and earth. And Jesus says to him, not only did I see you under the fig tree, I know what you were meditating on. And then I think Jesus is saying this to him. I am the ladder. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I'm the one who gives access to that. And Nathanael in that moment just says, I give up. You're the king of Israel. You're the son of God. And so John 1 is all about this. He's the Logos who is the life because he's the creator. He's the essence of life. When you get life, you get light. And then you and I must come to see that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he raises us to life. And and in that life transformation, he changes us. Aren't you thankful in this room today that our, our past is littered with things that we're not proud of, but He's continuing to do the work. You know why I love this part? He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete the work. He doesn't just abandon us, and I believe that we persevere. I believe the true children of God persevere, and they they stumble along the way. We all do. But if we're His, we're His. We don't lose our salvation. We belong to Him. And our salvation is secure because he is Lord. He is the Lord of all. So this is John's heart. This is the theme of John 1. And these themes, again, will carry out through the rest of the book. All right, let's pray.